Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Desperate measures to try to save a generation of baby sea turtles from the Gulf Coast oil. The disaster that's unfolding right now in the Gulf is the the greatest calamity for sea turtles that, that I've ever seen. It's extremely frustrating because it's not something that we can fix right away. Plus, how Coal Country's Senator for Life changed his opinions on climate change. To deny the mounting science of climate change is to tick our heads in the sand and say, deal me out. West Virginia would be much smarter not to say that, but to stay at the table. The unfinished final chapter of Robert C. Byrd's remarkable life. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The oil in the Gulf of Mexico is hitting the shores of Florida's panhandle just as an ancient, epic event is unfolding on those beaches. Hundreds of female sea turtles are making their only trip out of the water to nest. Wildlife experts say the turtle hatchlings will likely die if they emerge into the oiled waters. So federal and state officials have made a bold decision to intervene on a massive scale. David Godfrey is executive director of the Sea Turtle Conservancy, a group working on the plan. Mr. Godfrey, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you. Nice to be here. So what is the plan here? What what do you hope to do? Well, in essence, what we're trying to do is save this year's entire hatchling class of sea turtles from the north Gulf coast of Florida, from emerging from their nest and then swimming out into the Gulf to really meet almost certain doom because of all the oil that is in that region. How do you do it? How do you move all these nests? And how many nests are we talking about? Well, in that part of the the Florida coast, on average, we probably see in the neighborhood of 700 nests. And of course, each nest has approximately 100 eggs in it. So 70,000 or more eggs are going to be moved. A number of things are being done to avoid all of the potential negative impacts from doing this. And and the things that we're concerned about, those include potentially uh, tinkering with the sex ratio of the hatchlings that are developing. How would it change the sex ratio of the hatchlings from just by moving the eggs? Well, because the sex of each hatchling is determined by the temperature at which the egg incubates, if you're moving them all to a particular region, number one, you're changing the temperature that they would have incubated at under normal circumstances, and you're sort of putting all your eggs in one basket <laughs> so that they might all be incubating at the same temperature because they're in the same location, thereby creating almost all one sex. So the eggs are going to be allowed to incubate where they were deposited for almost the entire incubation process, which is about 60 days. And at that 50-day mark, the nest will be carefully dug up, the eggs removed and placed into a specialized container that is given a layer of sand around the outside directly from the nest. So they're still within the same sand that they were in before. And each one of those individual containers will be carefully transported 
to a hatchery facility on the east coast of Florida. And then as the hatchlings emerge in the container, they will immediately be released at the first nightfall in a variety of different locations so that there's not this massive flood of hatchlings all leaving the beach and entering the water at the same location, which might tend to attract predators. So we want to avoid that as well. What might this do to the uh, the turtles and their habits of where they end up nesting in the future? Will, will those hatchlings, will they then return to that beach where they were released, or would they try to get back to the beach on the Gulf Coast? Well, certainly we hope that they will go back to their natal beach, the beach where they are supposed to be nesting on the Gulf Coast. And the protocol that's being used to move these nests, we hope, is giving them the best chance of doing just that. It appears that sea turtles can use the Earth's magnetic field to determine where they are at any given moment and and use that information to navigate. Well, in order for that to happen, they must have some sort of almost internal map that tells them where they are. And it's unknown to science and to, and to biologists exactly when that map is created. Is it information that's passed on genetically? So whether you move them or not, the information is there. Or is it something that occurs during the incubation process? We don't know exactly. But by leaving them there as long as possible, leaving them within the sand from that beach, we think gives them the greatest chance of not having their sort of navigation cues or that map um, disturbed in some way. This sounds like a big gamble, but one where you're looking at a a series of choices ranging from really bad to somewhat less bad. I think that's a, a fair way to look at it. There are potential risks with the relocation, but we think that the plan that's in place minimizes every one of those risks. It is also true that our organization generally is very much opposed to relocating turtle nests. So ordinarily, you'd be opposed to relocating these nests. That's right. I mean, that simply is not the way to recover sea turtle populations. The real way to do that is to address threats that turtles are facing, whether it's artificial lights or inappropriate coastal development. We need to address and reduce each one of those threats in order for sea turtles to survive. And relocating nests is simply hiding from the real problem. Well, the reality because of the spill is we can't address that problem anytime soon. It's the greatest calamity for sea turtles that that I've ever seen. The Sea Turtle Conservancy literally was the first organization in the world formed to protect sea turtles. And to see all that work and all of our progress jeopardized by this one incident, it's heartbreaking and frustrating. And we're just doing what we can at this moment to give them the best chance at survival. David Godfrey is executive director of the Sea Turtle Conservancy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, a number of entrepreneurs say they have an answer for the oil in the Gulf. Seed the ocean with trillions of ravenous super bacteria that eat hydrocarbons. These companies are pitching their lab-tested superbugs all around the Gulf Coast. One even testified before Congress. But a leading expert in bioremediation is deeply skeptical. Microbiologist Ronald Atlas at the University of Louisville pioneered the use of microorganisms and their enzymes to clean up oil spills. Professor Atlas says, unfortunately, there is no quick fix. 
There have been decades of looking for a superbug. There have been genetically engineered and patented oil-degrading bacteria. You can do it in the laboratory, but when you come to the real world, it fails. And the difference between the lab and field tests, uh, why, why do you see such different results between those two experiences? In the field, as soon as the oil comes out of the well, it's being colonized by indigenous or native bacteria. So that if you're trying to add a foreign bacterium, you not only have to worry about whether it can degrade the oil, but can it displace and get rid of the organisms that are already colonizing all over the oil droplets. Now, you speak with a great deal of authority on this issue because you've worked on a lot of spill. How many spills have you have you worked on? Oh, quite a number. I've worked on the Ixtoc-1 well blowout, which until now was the largest in the Gulf region, the Exxon Valdez, the Amoco Cadiz, the Kuwait oil spill, um, smaller spills in the jungles of uh, the Amazon in Ecuador. When you were working on these earlier spills, say uh, the Valdez spill, did you get uh, these sales pitches from companies saying, here, use use my superbug and we can clean this up for you? Yes. One of the jobs that I had for Exxon and the US EPA was to sit at a desk and have one salesperson after another come in and throw things at me. Everything from orange peels and lemon peels, which supposedly were bioremediation agents because you couldn't smell the oil when you threw them on, to endless bacterial sales pitches. And yes, it reached Congress and the White House at that point, And I had to go into Washington and defend the science against the political onslaught of the bug salespeople. It's absolute deja vu. Well, what is going on with the bacteria in the Gulf, with the oil? What, what do you think is going on now? Well, clearly there are bacteria in the Gulf that are able to degrade oil, and they are colonizing the oil droplets as it comes out of the well and beginning to grow. It's in the area of the Gulf where this particular spill is occurring. There are 63 natural seeps. There's 20 million gallons a year of oil that naturally enter this region of the Gulf. And for bacteria, that's a wonderful food source. They don't degrade the oil instantly. It's a slow process, taking weeks, months, even years for some of the different compounds in the oil to go away. But the bacteria that naturally occur there are able to degrade the oil, and eventually they'll get rid of most of the oil components. So what should we be doing then? I think right now we try to continually clean up the oil by physical containment and removal. When that fails, we're going to look at that natural bacterial weathering process, and we're going to ask the question, can we speed it up by adding a nitrogen and phosphorus-containing fertilizer, much like what you do in your garden? When you talk about adding nutrients uh, to this part of the Gulf, I mean, don't they already have too many nutrients? So that's that's what causes that low oxygen dead zone in, in the Gulf. Can you add nutrients, fertilize, without making that lack of oxygen worse? Yes, most of the bacteria that rapidly degrade oil do consume oxygen. And what we saw in Exxon Valdez was a depletion of about 30% when very rapid degradation occurs. But they've not brought it down to a dead zone that would kill fish. So we see a depression, but as long as the water is flowing, we don't see a total elimination of oxygen. And how much benefit can we expect from this approach? How much good might this do us? 
in the Exxon Valdez spill case, which was the largest use of bioremediation ever, we found we could speed it up two to five times, which meant if you were looking at a decade of impact, you could reduce it to two to five years. So the question becomes, if it was going to be a decade, is speeding it up worth the effort? And generally, I'd argue it is. So this might be especially beneficial for areas that are really hard to clean otherwise, right? Certainly looks like the marshes represent an area where bioremediation may be needed. And certainly if any of these storms move the oil into the bays and it becomes trapped in other sorts of shorelines, that's where I'd expect bioremediation to be most useful. The good news is that the oil will naturally weather, the ecosystem will eventually recover. The downside is it's not going to happen instantly. Uh, we've just not found the magic bullets that will make this oil go away tomorrow. Dr. Ronald Atlas, microbiologist and expert on bioremediation and oil spills. Thank you very much. Thank you. And by the way, scientists monitoring the dead zone that forms around the Mississippi Delta each year just put out their forecast for this year. They expect the dead zone to cover some 7,700 square miles, an area the size of New Jersey. And that's not factoring in possible effects of the oil, which will likely lower oxygen levels in some waters even further. There's more about this and all our special Gulf coverage at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, how the longest-serving senator changed his mind about old King Cole. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. It's crunch time on Capitol Hill for energy and climate change. President Obama called senators to the White House to try to find some bipartisan agreement. Democratic leaders want some sort of cap on greenhouse gases. Republican leaders call that a national energy tax. The White House meeting might have opened a new middle path a plan to limit emissions from just one part of the nation's energy economy, power plants. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj explores where that path might lead. When it comes to energy and climate change, the Senate has no shortage of ideas. Half a dozen proposals have been introduced, and many senators hope the recent talk with President Obama would clear up which one should lead the way. Instead, the bipartisan group of 23 senators returned to Capitol Hill with few specifics. There wasn't a decision point at this meeting. It was a roundtable discussion. Uh, Well, it was a good conversation. I think it's fair to say that there was no consensus about what the path forward is. The president was very strong that this is a moment uh, to aim high. He urges to aim high, and everybody had a chance to say their piece. He would interact with people as they would say their piece. We came back at the end, he says, okay, this is what I think I'm hearing. Senator Tom Carper, a Delaware Democrat, said that while the president didn't lead the group to any particular policy, it became clear that one approach to climate change would be more politically viable than others. I sense a a willingness to address carbon dioxide with respect to utilities. Limiting emissions from just electric utilities is a new compromise possibility. It differs from the House climate change bill passed a year ago that would cap emissions from all sectors of the economy. Greenhouse gas polluters would buy and sell pollution permits with one another to find the cheapest way to keep their emissions under a declining target. 
But Paul Bledsoe, an analyst with the Bipartisan Policy Center, said a complimentary Senate bill sponsored by John Kerry and Joe Lieberman hasn't found much support. I think there has been a sense for some time that it was going to be difficult to pass economy-wide in the U.S. Senate. And it looks right now like the most aggressive bill that could emerge from the Senate on climate would be one that put uh, emissions limits on the electric utility industry alone. Senators Kerry and Lieberman said they'd be willing to consider starting with a cap on just utilities and leave transportation and manufacturing for later. Bledsoe says as far as compromises go, it's not a terrible one to make. For one, the coal-burning utility sector is responsible for about a third of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So it's by far the biggest piece of the U.S. domestic emissions reductions. And every successful cap has started with the utility sector. California first regulated the utility sector. Europe first regulated the utility sector. So capping emissions from power plants first seems to be a very logical step in beginning to reduce emissions from the whole economy. The Power Plant Association Edison Electric Institute isn't ready to comment on limiting emissions from only their industry. Some utilities have long been opposed to a cap, but others, like Duke Energy, are in favor. You know, we're willing to do that. You know, I I would say, in essence, half a loaf is better than no loaf at all. Tom Williams is the spokesman for Duke Energy, one of the biggest utility companies and biggest single emitters in the country, and one that's been active in supporting cap-and-trade legislation. Williams says cap-and-trade worked for the industry before, cutting sulfur dioxide emissions during the acid rain program of the early 1990s. He says a similar system can work for the industry with carbon dioxide. So we're used to how these markets work, and we're able to, you know, with a cap-and-trade approach, we're able to meet very tough regulations at costs much less expensive than we were otherwise able to meet them. So we've been there before, we've made these types of systems work, and we're a good industry to start with. Focusing on just one sector of the economy probably won't deliver the amount of emissions cuts the president is hoping for. He said he wants reductions of 17 percent by 2020. But Robert Stevens, a Harvard economist, says it's unlikely that target can be achieved from capping just the utility sector. Rather than achieving something on the order of 17 percent reductions by 2020, instead you'd probably find reductions of about one-third of that. A third of the president's goal is quite a step back for many green groups who were pushing the president to make even deeper cuts. But Steve Cochran, director of the Environmental Defense Fund's National Climate Campaign, says it's better than the energy-only bills that some senators are pushing. Those proposals would support renewable energy without mandating a limit to emissions. Zero uh, is not a good outcome, uh, and that's one of the options that's on the table. And so uh, if somebody wants to pass an energy-only bill, they'll certainly do it without our support. They may do it over our opposition if that's what they decide to do. For all the talk about a utility-only cap, a proposal has yet to be written. Senator Jeff Bingaman, chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, recently said he's working on one, but is unsure there'll be enough support for him to introduce it. Energy and climate proposals will be tied together with an oil spill bill, and taken up by the full Senate in mid-July. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington. My name is Robert C. Byrd. I am a United States Senator, and I am an American. America lost a piece of living history with the death of its longest-serving senator. West Virginians, like me, felt a deeper sense of loss. Senator Byrd, with his white hair and red vest, was as much a symbol of our state as the red cardinal and the black bear. His loyalty to West Virginia and the U.S. Constitution never wavered. But Senator Byrd was willing to change. 
He changed his views on race and war. And after decades of defending the coal industry, Senator Byrd was changing again in his final years. Reporter Ken Ward Jr. at the Charleston Gazette was one of the first to take note. In the mid to late 90s, Senator Byrd was, was among those who pushed to block United States ratification of the Kyoto Protocol, which would have limited greenhouse gas emissions. Senator Byrd was very clearly a friend of coal and did everything he could to protect and defend that industry. And when it came to mountaintop removal mining, Senator Byrd in the 90s, he was right, right there in the trenches with the mining industry. Senator Byrd fought very hard in the Senate. He failed in this effort, but fought very hard in the Senate to rewrite portions of of the Clean Water Act to uh, specifically approve valley fills and allow coal operators to continue burying streams. Senator Byrd made it clear that anything that was going to curtail or limit mountaintop removal, he was going to stop. Senator Byrd referred to environmentalists as, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, head-in-the-clouds individuals that would have us live in a utopia among old-growth forests but didn't have any realization of of the economic impact of the coal industry and the fact that the coal industry puts food on the table with people in his home state. And this was not that long ago. This was... 1999. So here in recent years, however, we saw a very different kind of rhetoric and message coming from Senator Byrd. What was that about? One thing to keep in mind in understanding this, it really was a transformation in progress of his thinking. In December of last year, he issued a uh, a long statement and gave a speech encouraging the coal industry to embrace the future, to not pretend that climate change wasn't happening and and that greenhouse gas emissions weren't affecting the climate, to seek some sort of middle ground on mountaintop removal issues. West Virginians may demonstrate anger toward the... Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, over mountaintop removal mining, but we risk the very probable consequence of shouting ourselves out of any productive dialogue with the EPA and our adversaries here in the Congress. Ken Ward, that that sounds to me like it's a rebuke of what other uh, West Virginia political leaders were, were doing at the time. Oh, it, it absolutely was a direct rebuke of Governor Manchin, of Congressman Ray Hall, of Senator Rockefeller, all of whom were engaged in this increasingly extreme rhetoric whereby any small step toward trying to get a grip on the impacts of the coal industry was immediately attacked very vocally is anti-jobs. And Senator Byrd was not just speaking to the people of West Virginia, but I think was speaking to his fellow political leaders saying, this isn't going to get us anywhere. This isn't the way to to try to deal with these issues. And, And here's another excerpt from that speech. To be part of any solution, one must first acknowledge a problem. To deny the mounting science of climate change is to tick our heads in the sand and say, deal me out. West Virginia would be much smarter not to say that, but to stay at the table. That's a remarkable statement on climate change from someone who not that long ago was was working very hard to block any action on climate change. And just as remarkable as that statement is, one of Senator Byrd's last roll call votes in the United States Senate was a vote against the Murkowski resolution to overturn EPA's findings 
that climate change was a threat to public health and welfare. And, and among his reasons for doing so, he said the Murkowski resolution was ignoring science. And Senator Byrd said West Virginians ought not ignore the science of climate change. It, it's really remarkable. One of his last big messages to West Virginia was a plea for a reasoned dialogue. Do you see any indication that people there heard him? In West Virginia, I think you, you no longer have anybody who is a major elected official or a major political figure who is really interested in confronting these issues in a meaningful way. He was really a lone voice on this, and he was also now becoming almost a referee on these issues with coal and climate, where he was saying, okay, now, folks, just standing around and yelling at each other and calling EPA names isn't going to get us anywhere. Let's talk together and find ways forward. And now we don't have that voice helping us do that. Ken Ward, Jr. at the Charleston Gazette. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration just sent a research vessel to learn how the BP oil disaster is affecting the only endangered marine mammal in the Gulf, the sperm whale. A NOAA report estimates about 1,600 sperm whales live in the Gulf. On June 15th, government scientists found the carcass of a young whale about 80 miles south of the BP wellhead. Texas Tech toxicologist Celine Goddard-Cotting warns that just a few deaths could tip the balance. The 2009 report uh, done by uh, NOAA mentioned that if there is about three animals that die beyond normal mortality happening, for example, if it's due to the oil spill, there would be a cause uh, for great concern for that population. So just three, three deaths above the normal mortality would mean what? That they are in trouble? That's correct. Three deaths that would be due to human causes. You know, when I was looking at that uh, report from NOAA, there's a map that uh, shows you where the sperm whales have been spotted over time in the Gulf. And what stands out to me when I look at that image is the overlap between many of those sightings and where we now know the, the oil is in the Gulf. There's about 260, 280 whales that appear to be sighted in that area that's very close to the origin of the oil spill on a regular basis. What does that mean for sperm whales if they come into contact with the oil? How, how might the oil affect them? This oil spill disaster is of a scale that we haven't seen before, and there is a potential for direct exposure to the whales. Maybe if they breathe uh, the fumes, but there are also the potential for toxic effects or negative impacts occurring not right away but also in terms of long-term chronic exposure to oil and the potential effects that may cause. That's marine toxicology professor Celine Goddard-Cotting at Texas Tech. Biology professor Hal Whitehead at Nova Scotia's Dalhousie University shares her concern. After 30 years studying sperm whales, Professor Whitehead is still in awe each time he sees them. You see this massive, massive head, uh, which is the sonar system, and then this strange wrinkled body. I mean, they look completely weird. And of course, they live in this strange world, which we know very little about, the deep ocean. And yet, on the other hand, these, these animals, they're mammals. And you can see them 
stroking each other, touching each other, nuzzling each other, you know, almost uh, kissing each other. They have a very tender, deep and important social life. Professor Whitehead records the whale's vocalizations, which vary depending on where they live and what they're doing. What we're hearing is a large number of sperm whales clicking. Most of the clicks you hear are from sperm whales using the clicks as a sonar system. The front quarter of their body is this sonar system, and it produces the most powerful sound in the animal world. But they also use the clicks for other purposes, and uh, this is one of the ways, perhaps one of the main ways, they communicate with each other. And um, we think these may be a large, uh, an important part of the glue that puts their societies together. Yeah, it's an extraordinary system. There are a lot of superlatives attached to the sperm whale. They have, they're the first in a lot of things, aren't they? They, they are. I, I call them the animal of extremes, and and for a. Um, A biologist, it's a puzzle. Why is this animal, which has this powerful sonar system, also got the largest brain on Earth? Why is it also the animal in which the males and females are most separated on Earth? So most of the adult males are in Arctic or Antarctic waters, whereas most of the adult females are in the tropics and subtropics. Why is it they still take out of the ocean an amount which is roughly comparable to all the human fisheries? You're, you're kidding me. The, the the actual amount of fish that sperm whales eat is is on par with what we take out of the ocean. Well, not quite. They mainly eat squid, ah, and right. we mainly eat fish. Now, they eat some fish, and we eat some squid. But basically, if you add up the amount that they eat and you add up the amount we eat, it's about the same. We hunted these whales primarily for the oil. And then we discovered this new thing called ground oil, and that kind of killed the market for for hunting whales for oil. The history of oil and, and whales has been intertwined for, for a long time, hasn't it? Oh, it, it has, yes. I mean, the, the Quakers of, of Nantucket of the late 18th century, in some ways they were the BP of that era. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, they, they caused a lot of environmental damage too. But as you say, when... People found the ground oil coming out of that field in Pennsylvania. Then that changed the balance, and in some ways it let the sperm whales off the hook. What is at risk in the Gulf of Mexico? What's your concern with what's going on there? My concern is that we have a moderately well-studied population of sperm whales. What we know about them is that they're an important part of the life of the Gulf of Mexico because they're big and important predators. They're largely separated from other sperm whales. They have their own way of doing things. The different areas of the Atlantic have somewhat different dialects. So the Gulf of Mexico has a fairly distinctive dialect, which is different from the um, sperm whales in, the, say, the Eastern Caribbean or in the Sargasso Sea um, out off the east coast of, of the States. A southern accent, maybe. A southern accent. <laughs> and, and, and the important thing, I think, to me, is that that's the bit of their behavior we can most easily record and study. I think it's very likely that those sperm whales in the Gulf of Mexico have a bunch of other culturally determined behavior, which is really important to them, which determines their identity, how they relate to their environment. So just as we try and preserve the diversity of human languages, so it's important for the sperm whales and the other whale species to preserve the um, diversity of cultures. And you think uh, whales are developing culture? 
Well, I think it, it's not so much they've been developing. I suspect they've had it for a lot longer than we have. Till the modern human came along, the extraordinary modern human. If, if you were looking for culture on Earth, you, you'd find it in the oceans. As with humans, with these animals, we should value their cultural diversity. The diversity of knowledge as represented by what's held in different parts of, of the Atlantic, including the Gulf of Mexico, is a really important resource for the whole sperm whale population. And, and if they're gone, we've lost that forever. Well, Professor Hal Whitehead, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Biology professor Hal Whitehead at Dalhousie University. There's more about his work and Noah's report on Gulf sperm whales at our website, loe.org. Coming up, learning to love a bloodsucker that's not in the Twilight Saga. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. In 1967, doctors performed the first heart transplant, and the U.S. Supreme Court fully legalized interracial marriage. Well, now in 2010, doctors have finally shown that the heart never segregates. Living on Earth and Planet Harmony's Regina Campbell Malone brings us this note on emerging science. Interracial couples have known for millennia that the heart is colorblind. But a new study of heart transplants tells us that the human heart itself functions very well, even across color lines. Researchers at Johns Hopkins University examined medical records from over 20,000 transplant patients and found that the one-year survival rates were equal whether donors and recipients were the same race or not. This suggests that donor-recipient race matching will not improve transplant success in the short term, meaning that an African-American patient waiting for a heart is not limited to the relatively small pool of African-American donors. But what we don't know is why African-American transplant recipients still have lower survival rates in the long term compared to other races. Five years after heart transplant surgery, African-American patients have a survival rate that is about 10% lower than Hispanics and whites. While this study ruled out race matching as a root cause for short-term survival differences, other factors, including health insurance status, education, hypertension, and gender mismatch, may be contributing to the disparity. Researchers still have a lot to learn, but the heart of the matter is that when it comes to heart transplants, we're all the same on the inside. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Regina Campbell Malone. Planet Harmony invites everyone to the environmental discussion. Log in and send your stories, audio, and video to our site at myplanetharmony.com. Millions, maybe billions of words have been written about BP's runaway oil well. Yet words still fail us. We still lack the right term for what's happening in the Gulf. So we turn to Paul J.J. Payak for guidance. 
He's president of the Global Language Monitor in Austin, Texas, where he tracks changes in the language, including the words most often used to describe the oil in the Gulf. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the top word is oil spill, which is actually quite a disappointment. Uh, Many times when you have new events in the language, the language leads the event. You can actually, there's new words that pop up in profusion. Mm -hmm. And in this case... We haven't seen that many new words. What we've seen is the old way to describe an oil spill. The Exxon Valdez has a crash, spills the uh, oil out, and that's a spill. But this is different. This is a lot different than a spill. Because a a spill connotes a a fixed amount that spilled from a a container into where you don't want it. That's not what's happening here at all. In our case, uh, we're not talking about a spill. We're talking about an oil field that's estimated at three, four, five billion barrels erupting, but we still refer to it as a spill. What other words are people trying out here? Okay, they're trying out things like a disaster, the Gulf oil uh, spill disaster. Another one that's pretty high up is Valdez from the Exxon Valdez. Okay, and then we have blowout, and that's been used in the oil industry for probably a hundred years now. It's you know it's given a lot of rise to people talking about an apocalypse and things of that nature. I've come across the terms uh, oil apocalypse and oil mageddon. Yeah, well, let me get it. Well, those are, you know, that's, that's like the snowpocalypse in Washington, D.C., <laughs> right? And Snowmageddon, that, that was very widely adopted by the media. So we're looking for things like that. We're looking for those clever formations, but they haven't really taken hold. Other words that people are using are gusher, mm-hmm. plume. Another one that we found in the foreign press was torrent, a torrent of oil. Torrent. That's good because it's, it's pouring forth. Yeah. But again, its bill is used a thousand times more than torrent is used. Gusher is a pretty good one. It, it's accurate, I think. However, when you think of a gusher, you think, well, that's a good thing. Hey, we, we struck it rich. We hit a gusher. Right. And that's, that's, you always have to explain that a gusher isn't necessarily good when people are looking at a gusher. All that oil and gas, et cetera, is being wasted. The incident is, however, giving us a, a lot of new and interesting terms, a top kill, junk shot, things like that. Uh, what are you learning from tracking that kind of language that's emerging? That's very interesting. Top hat was number one, okay, and then blowout, and then top kill, and then torrent as a technical term. Now, number five is really interesting to us, Macondo blowout. Macondo. Why mm-hmm. is Macondo being used with this BP incident? Well, first of all, it's the Macondo field. When you buy a tract, you name it. And evidently, this was named the Macondo tract. Okay? Now, it's from a book, 100 Years of Solitude, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And that is a book that you could look at it that is about a faded town. Some may say cursed. Yeah, Macondo, Macondo gets, gets wiped, wiped away in the end of the book. It gets wiped away, and during the multiple generations that you read about, there is some happiness and joy, but there is this insurmountable number of things that need to be overcome, horrendous things. Let me read from the end of the book. It was as if God had decided to put to the test every capacity for surprise and was keeping the inhabitants of Macondo in a permanent alternation between excitement and disappointment, doubt and revelation, to such an extreme that no one knew for certain where the limits of reality lay. 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez could have been writing about the Gulf today. It's amazing. Certainly sounds that way. Certainly sounds to reverberate with this whole end of 100 years of solitude and and the summation of what's going on. Macondo. Wow. Thanks very much. Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks a lot. Paul J.J. Payak is Chief Word Analyst with the Global Language Monitor. Now, don't you be speechless. Let us know what word or phrase you think best describes the oil mess in the Gulf. Send your words our way to our Facebook page at PRI's Living on Earth or comments at LOE.org or our listener line 800-218-9988. love to hate black flies. They feed on the blood of animals, including people, and many states have programs to eradicate them. But one group in Maine believes if you can't beat them, join them. Laurie Sanders has our story. If you really want to know what Maine is like, Marilyn Dowling says you've got to experience it in black fly season. The East Machias River is one of the best black fly hatcheries around. It's clean water, it's flowing briskly, and we have the most incredible swarm here every year. And she's right. Within moments, a cloud of black flies starts to gather around us. They're all females, each one seeking a blood meal to enrich her eggs that she'll soon be laying. I notice you have a few bites today. You have two good ones right behind your ear. That's a status symbol, having the two bites behind your ear like that. A status symbol, at least, according to Dowling. She's one of the key members of the Maine Black Fly Breeders Association, a group unlike any other in the country, and that now boasts more than 1,000 members. The group actually began as a complete joke 15 years ago. The founder began it by writing fake press releases and tongue-in-cheek ads for the local papers about the virtues of black flies. Dowling says it was a way to bring some humor into a season that most people, whether they're tourists or locals, just suffer through. And Dowling likes to play it up. Tacked on the side of her house is a sign that reads, Top Secret Research Facility. This is the Bean Brook Blackfly Hatchery. There's a brook down through those trees. And sometimes you have to keep the location of the hatchery secret because there's some misunderstanding. Sometimes there's a little hostility towards the blackfly. Probably more than a little. But kidding aside, Dowling says black flies do have a role in the natural world. They're indicators of clean running water. They play a valuable part of the food chain. And male black flies are credited with some of the pollination of wild blueberries, which is significant here in Washington County. This part of Maine produces 85% of the world's wild blueberry crop. In her day-to-day life, Dowling is an artist. Stepping inside her house, she points out the black fly village she built, a collection of miniature, hand-painted wooden buildings. Here we have the Blackfly Riverside Motel, clean running water, cable TV, continental breakfast, which is tourists. This is a condo unit. And here's the Blackfly Blood Bank and Trust with the fly-up teller. Dowling has also designed T-shirts, bumper stickers, magnets, and coffee cups with slogans like Save the Blackfly and We Breed Em, You Feed Em, and Fatten, don't flatten. All of this is for sale, but not to raise money for the association. Holly Garner-Jackson says, in the last decade, 
The group has donated more than $40,000 to a variety of charities. We've given to the Quadi Regional Land Trust. We've given to the Great Auk Land Trust. The Blackfly Breeders Association has also made gifts to area libraries, animal shelters, food pantries, and many others. We do where we can. We're trying to keep it local because Washington County is, you know, is where we live and where we breed blackflies and where they pollinate the blueberries. So we're giving back to the community that has supported us, and we laugh with them and they laugh with us. And one reason they laugh is because of Bloody Mary. That's M-E-R-R-Y. And right now she's resting up on Dowling's couch. Yeah, it's hard to miss her. Kind of like the elephant in the living room, right? Only it's a black fly and she's nine feet long. Takes up the whole couch. I built her in the living room one winter. Some people say, your winters are way too long. Dowling built her four years ago out of local and recycled materials. And Mary is a work of art, a favorite at parades and conferences. And she's mechanized. Bloody Mary, don't panic. We're just going to move you. We clear away the furniture and shift her to her pedestal. You should stand back or you're going to get hit by a wing. Dowling plugs her in and Mary starts flapping away. There she goes. A lot of children really love her. They'll just run right up and give her a big hug. I think she's doing a lot for public relations between humans and black Bloody Mary will be making several appearances at festivals around Maine this summer. For Living on Earth, I'm Laurie Sanders, and may the swarm be with you. Most of us look to the sun as our source of light and heat. But Robertus von Feisiebenbergen turns to the sun and listens. He's head of the solar physics team at the UK's University of Sheffield, and he's captured the magnetic vibrations of the sun's corona and turned them into sound. Listen. So, Professor, what are we hearing here? This is awesome, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, I think the way to imagine this is that, uh, imagine that you have a football ball and uh, on the surface of the ball there would be little spikes. Now, these little spikes, what are also on the sun, are made of uh, magnetic field lines. You know, magnetic field lines do not go into infinity, like uh, electric field lines, so they always are closed. They are like strings, like a guitar string, so it has a beginning and an end. And what you have here is the observation of these oscillations and the frequency is then transformed into the frequency of the human ear. How does uh, turning the data into sound help you better understand this? Right. If you have a kidney stone, these days you're not going to have an operation. What will happen, you go to the doctor, he's using a sonic device, he launches sound wave, then your kidney reflects the sound wave and there is a smart device which turns the reflected sound into an image and the doctor can see inside your body. We cannot go into the sun or we can't even go into the atmosphere of the sun. So what we do, we try to find in nature a phenomenon which will, which will generate oscillations or waves. We, we observe the reflected waves, we analyze these reflected waves and then that's the way we try to look into a star or we try to look into the feature of a star. 
So when you're hearing that with your very practiced ear on this, what do you hear? Uh, noise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not really noise. It's, it's actually a beautiful music. Can I just give you another example? Sure. A very simple mm-hmm. one that people can understand. Um, you know, when you go to the railway station, very often you see a gentleman having a hammer in his hand, mm-hmm. and he goes along the train, and he hits the wheel mm, kind of, of the ping, train. Kind of pinging him, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. What he's doing, we are doing exactly the same. This gentleman hits the wheel, and then he, he listens to the response of the wheel, and if there is a little crack, he's able to identify with his ear that the response, you know, the tone, the pitch, is different. Right. It's going to buzz a little, and he knows something's bad, yeah. Yes, we do exactly the same. We know what frequencies they should have, and what we detect, what we hear is different from what we would expect. And then this difference is what is telling us information about uh, the structure of, for instance, the internal structure of a star or the internal structure of, of various magnetic features in the atmosphere of the star. So this is the technique we are using. You know, I've read that we are entering a period of very irregular activity with sunspots. Absolutely correct. Will that show up in uh, the measurements that you're taking here? Will it change the, the tune that the corona is singing to you? Yes, absolutely. So there is usually there is an 11-year cycle. Now, what has happened, the last cycle, there was a very long, uh, silent mood of the sun. Yes, there was, there was very little activity. And what has happened this year, uh, the activity ha- started to pick up, and the prediction is that in 2012 or 2013, we may have one of the strongest activity uh, what we have seen. And that brings us to another extremely interesting question. I would like to remind everyone that in 1859, there was a very strong uh, solar activity, a solar solar eruption. Now, if that solar eruption would have happened now, these days, uh, that would have an absolutely serious consequence on life on Earth because it would kick out our electric system. Wow. Well, what kind of consequences can we expect from the upcoming activity then? Well, very likely something will happen, a strong activity. Now, what we should do, we should just observe the sun very carefully and try to predict um, these huge eruptions. And when the eruption happens, we should try to shut down our electric system at least for a couple of hours so that the electric system is not damaged. So going back to the, the fact that you've taken this data and put it in audible form, uh, did it strike you as, as this has potential for music? Uh, you know, what is music? Music is very relative, isn't it? it it's in the uh, ear of the beholder, <laughs> I guess, yes. Uh, some people call music what Eminem plays. Some people <laughs> call music what ABBA plays. <laughs> uh, you know, but I'm sure that if I show my grandmother uh, Eminem, she will say this is noise. <laughs> So, in a sense, what is music is uh, it has a very wide range of uh, interpretation. It's it's it, what we hear is um, is a music because uh, there is some harmonism in it, if you like. Uh, there is some periodicity, but the, the truth is, this is more or less like noise. <laughs> Robert von Feisenbergen at Sheffield, England's Solar Physics and Space Plasma Research Center. Thank you very much. I thank you. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Trees-Kanjaraja, and Mitra Tanj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Sousa. Our interns are Amanda Martinez and Megan Niner. 
Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.